Hello and welcome to episode number 70 of the Agro Innovations Podcast, all things related and debated in agriculture. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. This episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast has been released onto our website, agroinnovations.com slash podcast, on November 16th, 2009. For this episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast, I will be playing part two of my interview with Rob Hopkins, who is the founder of the Transition Culture Movement. And we will be talking about the apolitical nature of transition culture. Before we begin the second part of that interview, uh, I'd like to share something that Andrew, who's a listener to the Agro Innovations podcast, sent along. He says, keep up the good work. I really do appreciate the efforts you are making at bringing these topics to a worldwide audience, and I've sent the links to all my permaculture contacts. Well, Andrew, thank you very much, and the reason why I shared that comment from Andrew is because it's a great thing when listeners to the podcast send along emails or uh, put out tweets, uh, link to the Agro Innovations podcast on blog posts, that really helps to get us greater exposure to other people, and obviously the idea is to spread the word. So if you have contacts who are interested in permaculture and all the other things that we talk about here on the Agro Innovations podcast, then I'd really appreciate it if you sent that along to other people. Agro Innovations is on Twitter, twitter.com slash agroinnovations. You can also find us on iTunes. If you type in Agronovations on iTunes, it will come up. And there's also a link to subscribe to the Agronovations podcast via iTunes on the left-hand side of our podcast page, which is on agroinnovations.com slash podcast. Or you can send me an email, podcast at agroinnovations.com. And of course, the best way to participate in the community of listeners to the Agronovations podcast is on our comment thread, and that also can be found on our podcast page. Uh, so go ahead, and if you have something that's uh, burning a hole in your mind, then just sign on to our podcast page and leave us a comment. I always appreciate that. Well, with that out of the way, let's get right into our interview with Rob Hopkins. Well, as usual, there's an 800-pound gorilla in the room, and uh, I'd like to share something. I'd like to share something that... Uh, Ralph Nader said, I, I just listened to an interview with Ralph Nader on Radio Open Source um, mm -hmm. with Christopher Lydon, and this was an excellent interview. I, I recommend people listen to it, a link to it, but uh, let me share with you what Ralph Nader said. The global corporate model is all powerful now, it has no competition in terms of a model, the fall of communism and socialism and so on, which scared the capitalists a little bit, and they couldn't quite get away with what they're getting away with now. They have nationalized the savings of the American people. Uh, they're too big to fail, uh, so that they're bailed out as Wall Street is bailed out. They uh, have monetized elections and nullifying effectively people's votes. They select the politicians, put them in office, and when they retire, they hire them and give them a half a million dollars or more a year as lobbyists. I mean, it is the most clever, dynamic, creative uh, system of controlling power in the history of the world. To what extent, to be successful, do transition towns have to undermine this system of controlling power? And how can that be achieved? Um, 
What I've seen lots and lots since we've been doing transition is that there's lots of questions or observations where people say, oh, well, that's all very well, but or, I'll get them on this one. you know. And there's a kind of a list that people put up, which is of things that, well, you can't even think about doing transition until you have whatever. you know. So until you have uh, got rid of the idea of economic growth, uh, there's no point even beginning. Until you've got rid of uh, international corporate capitalism, there's no point even thinking about transition. Uh, you know, and actually, um, I think if we set ourselves a list like that, then we're never going to get anything done. And actually, um, I always return to what I heard Vandana Shiva say uh, about 15 years ago, and she said, these systems function because we give them our support. And if we withdraw our support, then they're no longer able to function. And so for me, transition is a way of uh, communities withdrawing their support, but, but in a way which is um, which is a positive step forward. And uh, I, could, you know, we could waste a huge amount of energy thinking, you know, but they won't let us. But the powers, the structures are too hard and too tight. Well, actually, um, I think the economically that system is already unraveling uh, at a rate of knots. Uh, I don't think that the bailouts are going to do that much in the long term. Uh, the reality is that we're entering very difficult uh, economic territory. And again, you know, it's about resilience. It comes back to this idea about building resilience. And yes, there are some aspects of building resilience where you need to work with, with the government. And there are a lot of degrees, of a lot of elements of resilience that you can just get on with. Um, but if we present these things as being... Uh, about resistance and campaign, and we set up a very adversarial them and us kind of a dynamic, uh, then the quality of what we do, I think, is very different from when we say, well, we're all in this together. What are we going to do about this? What's the most skillful way to proceed from this point forward? You know, and there are lots of people involved in transition, and certainly not everybody, but people who are involved actively in campaigning in different ways. Uh, um, but transition initiatives themselves take a perspective of, of not campaigning against things. Their starting point isn't whose fault is this, and it isn't about um, who do we need to campaign against here. Its starting point is that we're all in this together. But as I said, you know, we, transition isn't the only thing that's going to get us through, but I think it's going to be one of the important elements of that. Well, I, I agree with you on, on most of what you just said. Uh, what you describe is what I like to call a silent revolution in that uh, it focuses on those positive steps forward and doesn't seem like much of a revolution at all. But when you take it yeah. all together and you actually look at what people are doing, it's extremely revolutionary, like the um, the statement permaculture is revolution disguised as gardening. Yeah. Um, I think that's very apt, and I think it's very appropriate to what you were saying. However, uh, there's one caveat that I'd like to add, and that is that uh, th these these power structures that Ralph Nader refers to, like you said, they rely on our attention and our uh, tacit support. So what we are talking about in the form of transition towns and permaculture is, I, I would say, you know, fairly clearly against their interests, against the interests of the corporate model, uh, whether we're adversarial about it or not. Um, now, that said, I think that 
it's probably important for people at least to be aware of that so that when there are uh, when, when there when it comes to the point that this transition movement becomes powerful and when it comes to the point that it becomes very effective there will be propaganda and attempts perhaps to derail it um, but that that is to perhaps be expected and that just means that we're being successful yeah i mean i'm sure i'm sure that will be the case but actually you know when we started doing this if i'd have believed what we were told when we started doing this you know by now uh you know we'd have we'd have had loads and loads and loads of that you know everyone was like well you know if this gets anywhere you'll have this and you'll have that and you'll have the other you know i think what i think what we've tried to do with transition is to design something which comes in under the radar you know and it doesn't it hasn't set out uh, a confrontational uh element to it so or you know it, it it there's a kind of a dance i think that goes on which is that uh in some ways transitions like a trojan horse you know it's like it has permaculture inside it and it has various things but really the way it, it's it's that's not worn on its sleeve there's lots about transition that's implicit but not made explicit which means that we can go and talk to and work with some big organizations um and we're addressing where they're at and where they're coming from. There's something about transition as an idea which is quite viral and easy to communicate and quite sticky, which means that it pops up in the most unexpected places. You know, and I'm very mindful of, of you know, there have been lots of previous movements who found themselves uh, undermined or subverted or got, you know, pushed to one side or whatever. Um, but I think very often there's, a, there's an explicitly adversarial element to those. Uh, which doesn't exist with transition, uh, and um, uh, and I think the fact that uh, we're asking questions, not coming up with all the answers, but just asking questions which other organisations really haven't been thinking about and need to be asking, uh, and starting those discussions uh, means that actually I think increasingly we're seen as performing quite a valuable uh, uh, service in that regard as well. Well, I think, I think, Rob, one of the fundamental differences I think that we're experiencing now, I mean, you go back to the 19th century, and I think that uh, I really feel that people had no alternative than to be adversarial because of the nature of production, because of the nature of technology, because of the capital-intensive requirements. And now we live in a time where we are on the verge of being liberated and perhaps don't even realize it. We have things like riprap that allow for distributed fabrication, uh, you know, in small workshops. We have things like, you know, tabletop table saws that uh, seem like, a, you know, very simple technology to us now, but uh, 200 years ago, that type of technology was unheard of. And to have that uh, fabrication technology at our disposal it's really revolutionary in a way that people don't realize. And the amount of processing and computing power that people have on their desktop computers now uh, is unprecedented. So all of these things are kind of converging at the same time that, um, you know, are, are making our, our, our demise seem inevitable on the one hand, but are also the key to our liberation and our, um, our avoidance of that demise. Absolutely. I mean, I think we have we have astonishing uh, uh, things and tools at our disposal. Absolutely, and I and I suppose 
one of the things that I that I found really fascinating is, you know, that when we started, people were like, oh, well, you know, you're going to get attacked by the establishment and this, that, and the other. Actually, the, the main place where the, the critiques and the sort of uh, uh, attacks on what Transition is trying to do actually is coming from the very sort of the more radical sort of green uh, community who, who who sort of see see it as not being uh, in because it doesn't start out with this sort of belief that you have to get rid of capitalism first and all these kind of things. Uh, I mean, actually, I think if you wait, I don't know quite. There seems to be a thing sometimes where people can't quite believe that it's actually possible to achieve these things. And, and we come up with ways of sort of talking ourselves out of achieving the potential that we could actually create here. And, uh, you know, I think that thing is sort of, well, they'll shut us down, they'll stop us. Uh, um, I don't think that's, I, I don't think that's the case. I think actually what we're seeing in transition and in what Paul Hawking uh, talks about, you know, the millions of, of, of environmental projects around the world, you know, he talks about it as being like the, the, the Earth's immune system uh, kicking in at this time in history, I, I I think that's going to be kind of unstoppable because it has to be really. Right, and and some people will say, well, it's it's naive to think that at some point, uh, confrontation is not inevitable. And actually, I, I, there's an interview that I have just recently done with Doug Lane, who is also a podcaster that will be published uh, in the future uh, on the Agro Innovations podcast. But um, that was his response. And, you know, after I thought about it, well, my response to that is we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. But uh, in the meantime, let's build these parallel systems and let's make them strong. And once we have strong parallel systems, um, you know, we'll be in a much more we'll be in a much better position to deal with that when it when that time, if it ever comes, when it does come. Yeah, because actually, if if the work that you're doing is putting in place the parallel systems and they work and they are inclusive and they are socially just and they're financially viable and you've done them properly and then the models that you're putting to replace uh, which are inherently unsustainable and profoundly oil vulnerable uh, inevitably begin to demise then why is anybody going to want to get rid of those systems I mean they're, they're the systems that people are going to be depending on I think if we if we present those systems in a confrontational our systems better than your system kind of adversarial kind of nah, 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 sort of way you know then you then you do generate a kind of a degree of resentment and stuff which can you know which can over time lead to that kind of response but actually i think if we you know if a community sets up its own energy company and and it and it uh, offers a share option and half of the people in the community own shares in the renewable energy that's being put in around where they live and they can see the benefits of that renewable energy and that the money that's being generated uh, by that uh, company is going into uh, supporting other projects, and then the national energy infrastructure is struggling more and more and more. Then, you know, then you have something that everybody appreciates. I would think maybe I'm just tremendously naive, but uh, uh, that's that's really what I base my work on. You know, is that actually we just get on with it and just start building them. You know. Yeah, I I agree with you 100%. It's probably at least at the very least important to be aware of the context and the significance of what we're doing, and then, as you said, get on with doing it. Exactly. 
I mean, you know, I, th- I mean, it's, I'm not, when I use the word naive, you know, I mean, you only have to read Naomi Klein's Shock Doctrine book, you know, to kind of get some kind of a, a sense of the wider uh, framework that we're working within and the challenges and the, and the stresses and the, you know, the, the motivations of some of the people, uh, you know, in some of the things that are happening. But what do we do? Either we, we uh, try and um, fight against that uh you know, sort of in a kind of revolutionary kind of a way, or we, uh, um, or we just have a very sort of campaign-focused sort of political thing, which is which is very valuable and it's very important that some people do that, or we just get on and we just work away and we engage communities where we are and we start building a parallel infrastructure. You know, it's not the only thing that we need, but it's a key key part of it. Well, I'm sure you're also familiar with the work of James Howard Kunstler who uh, is not at all optimistic about the prospects for permaculture in a suburban environment. Um, And actually, I I am trying to organize a podcast around that theme. I don't want to say too much because it has not happened yet. But I just want to know what your thoughts on the prospects of permaculture in a suburban environment are uh, in response to Kunstler's assertion that uh, it's going to be too costly the infrastructure as it is now is really shoddily built despite the trillions of dollars of an investment and people are eventually just going to abandon uh, much of suburbia and it's just going to be kind of a blight on the landscape and really just going to move into towns and cities and, and rural landscapes in the future. What, what are your thoughts on the prospects of permaculture in, in suburbia? Uh, well, I think the first thing to say is, is I've never been to the U.S., so um, you do suburbia in quite a different way than we do suburbia here. And so my my when I talk about suburbia, I'm really kind of thinking about the suburbia around London, you know, which actually a lot of those um, a lot of that suburbia was uh, was designed with the idea of you know the houses with with big gardens uh, but they're quite good sort of in terms of rail connectivity and uh, and in many ways i think they will become the market gardens of the future the market towns um you know if you've got houses with 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 garden around them uh, i i i think that actually the permaculturing of of british suburbia of london suburbia uh, has huge potential uh, but I, I mean, all I know about suburbia in America is uh, is the end of suburbia, uh, which uh, doesn't paint a very good picture of its chances. Uh, but um, um, so, so I, I can't really comment. You know, I, I, I would it would be entirely kind of fanciful and notional because I've not actually been there. But uh, my sense in the UK in terms of suburbia is that there's is that there's a lot of potential there although it will require a rethinking about how we inhabit those spaces how we inhabit the that the houses how people get around and so on um but i think when we look at the cities uh and their food needs um and we rethink suburbia as being the market gardens uh, the 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 uh, that supply uh, suburbia, like kind of patchwork farms, you know, farms made up of skilled gardeners, producing some for their own needs uh, and, and some for sale, 
you know, I think uh, I think human creativity and permaculture principles can uh, can do really quite extraordinary things. But as I say, I wouldn't like to to speak to sound like I'm speaking remotely authoritatively about U.S. suburbia because I've never actually been there. Well, as someone who is personally actively engaged in trying to uh, apply the principles of permaculture in my suburban environment. Um, I can say that in, in my own mind, the jury is still out as to whether this is going to be a successful endeavor. And I and one of the reasons I say that is because I'm one of the few uh, that's actively engaged in doing that. Um, and the challenges are significant, although I do feel that the, that the technological obstacles are probably small compared to the behavioral obstacles that we face. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I, I mean, I th- I th- I, one of the things that was very interesting, I, I lived in Ireland for, for 10 years. Ireland experienced this huge economic boom that was referred to as the Celtic Tiger, um, where it went from being a relatively a small economy, very rural economy, to being a very booming uh, um, economy, which all went rather pear-shaped over the last year. Big, big recession underway in Ireland. Um, one of the things that's been very interesting there is there's, because the, the, the economy was really built around the construction industry. So there's now a huge amount of unemployed builders in Ireland, many of whom are retraining as organic growers, particularly in Dublin. And there's lots of organic growers, uh, lots of former builders now who are uh, who, who are sort of, uh, pushing for who, you know setting up organic gardening uh, businesses uh, in and around the city. Uh, and I think you know when when uh, necessity is the mother of invention, you know I think we can do extraordinary things. Although I do think one of the things that's come out of work we've been doing at Transition Network and out of the Contotness and District Feed Itself paper that I mentioned earlier on was looking at that kind of urban permaculture, that urban food production in a wider context is really important because if we imagine that that our suburban settlement is going to be able to produce everything that it eats, uh, we're kidding ourselves. Um, you know, so Totnes, for example, uh, growing its vegetables is easy. It's the cereals, it's the carbohydrates, it's the fats, it's the sugars that are the harder bit, which farming does much, much better than gardening. Uh, and so, you know, if we look at suburbia and we say it has to produce, it has to be self-sufficient, uh, it's not going to happen. But if we look at meeting our vegetable needs, our fruit needs, uh, and some of our energy needs from there, and then cereals and so on coming from, from, from farmland adjoining, uh, then I think we have a model which, which has much more potential for being successful. Well, yes, and, and by doing that, I mean, in, in my permacultural forays here in suburbia, I can say that I can grow uh, a tomato much more efficiently than uh, a grower in California can do. And I can build a, you know, on a micro scale, I can build an extremely robust uh, biological community, you know, in in an area that's four feet by eight feet. Um, And that's not something, I mean, that's something that can be done very feasibly in a a suburban environment. And that frees up uh, the prime farmland in places like California to do exactly what you said, produce carbohydrates. I mean, you're not going to grow enough wheat to feed your family from a window box. Obviously. Or from a small back garden, you know. But actually, you know, if, if, if all the different elements are doing what they do best, 
uh, and if the and if it's based around the proximity principle of things being supplied as close as where they're to, to, to the closest market, you know, then I think we can do it, and I think suburbia has an enormous role to play. Well, Kunstler would say that uh, perhaps that's not where we're going to run into the to the obstacles. It's in actually continuing to service the decaying infrastructure in suburbia that really was built on cheap petroleum. And once you unplug that cheap petroleum, uh, you won't be able to do that anymore. However, uh, you know, in in contrast to that view, I think what you were saying earlier in the interview, in the sense that if you actually sit down and, and maybe take a look at these issues and actually look at how much energy uh, would be required to do this, you know, maybe we can find uh, a reasonable compromise and perhaps dedicate uh, what what petroleum resources we have left to managing and maintaining that critical infrastructure uh, and then, you know, eliminate the things like cruising around in SUVs on Saturday nights. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I suppose ultimately I, I, I think that human beings are incredibly adaptable and creative. Uh, and, you know, I suppose, you know, sometimes people talk about the idea of localization and a kind of transitioned world as being somehow utopian, uh, which I don't agree with at all. And uh, I suppose for me, really, having taught permaculture for years, um, it's really, in my head anyway, my vision of, of the future is really a kind of an assembly of things that I've already seen happening in other places. You know, it's like a combination of so-and-so's garden and so-and-so's house and uh, so-and-so's way of getting around and that really good forest garden that so-and-so made. Uh, you know, all the different pieces are there. You know, this stuff is all tried and tested. It's like you said earlier on. Um, uh, it's about it's about the human side of it and the community side of it and how we motivate and sustain people and engage and sustain that 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 momentum. Actually, the nuts and bolts side of it is 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 the easy part of it. Well, Rob Hopkins, I, I'd like to thank you and I'd like to encourage people. I'd like to thank you for the work that you're doing. Uh, one, but also I'd like to thank you. I think perhaps more importantly for the optimistic energy that you bring to this debate and for the optimistic energy that you bring to actually implementing these solutions, I think that this is really what we need right now. And I hope that people who listen to this interview and people who are familiar with your work or perhaps being introduced to your work for the first time will really uh, think hard about this and try to take that optimistic energy and internalize it and then go about building their uh, transition culture of their own. Thank you. That concludes my interview with Rob Hopkins. You can find Rob Hopkins' website at transitionculture.org, and I linked to that in the previous episode, and I will link to that in this episode as well. And I will also link to the radio open source interview with Ralph Nader by Christopher Lydon. And I think it bears some considering what Ralph Nader's argument is in the interview with Christopher Lydon, which again, I will strongly recommend that people go listen to. But also, I saw Ralph Nader um, on C-SPAN yesterday, and to give full consideration to Ralph Nader's argument that 
after a lifetime as a citizen activist, uh, consumer advocate, political organizer, and grassroots citizen, Ralph Nader has kind of come up against a brick wall and is describing in his book, Only the Super Rich Can Save Us, a sort of utopian vision of civic action and social transformation that is started from top to bottom, but is really um, a, becomes a grassroots movement. And the premise of Ralph Nader's book is that without the financial resources, we will not be successful in organizing ourselves effectively as a counter-movement or an alternative to the current corporatist structures that uh, dominate our lives. Now, whether you agree with Ralph Nader's argument or not, I think it's something that bears consideration. And obviously, Rob Hopkins has his perspective on this. The reason why I think it bears consideration is because of Ralph Nader's uh, long history as a social organizer. And one of the things, uh, one of the stories he tells is uh, hitchhiking to Washington, D.C. in 1965 to go and regulate General Motors so that they would put seatbelts in cars. And when he told people what he was doing, they kind of looked at him crosswise and thought he was crazy, yet he's, he was successful as a young man, uh, ambitious and ideological, and concerned about uh, people's well-being. And now Ralph argues that uh, someone with similar ideals and similar enthusiasm would find such a task utterly impossible. Uh, the members of Congress are completely unresponsive to that type of lobbying on the part of concerned citizens. So uh, it's definitely a important question that we need to consider. And uh, I had mentioned Woody Tash and the slow money movement. I should also link to that in the show notes for this episode where they are talking about something very similar to what Rob Hopkins said in that communities must take the initiative in investing in themselves. And this is something that Slow Money is trying to articulate in terms of fleshing out the details of what that might look like and what types of things these communities should be investing in and what the mechanisms for uh, community-based investment would be. So, with all that said, uh, I, don't, I certainly don't have any answers, and I don't think there are any easy answers. And we will address some of these issues um, again in an interview with Doug Lane of the Diet Soap podcast, uh, but probably very soon. I, I don't know exactly when I'm going to publish that, uh, but in the near future. So keep your eyes and ears out for that. This and all episodes of the Agro Innovations podcast are released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. To learn more about that, you can visit creativecommons.org. This is the Agro Innovations podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. Until next time, saludos. <laughs>